Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. This is our last podcast of the year. We'll be back after the new year. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, guys... Uh, you know, I had sort of determined that we weren't going to play footsie with, well, we're not really talking about Trump in the election, so we can sort of put that to one side. But uh, the president came roaring out last night uh, after the uh, everybody was uh, patting themselves on the back at having finally delivered coronavirus relief to the suffering American people, Democrats and Republicans. Everyone's saying, well, it's good. It's maybe Biden's saying maybe it's only a first step. We're going to have to go back to the well. But, you know, we're proud of having done this. David Perdue, one of the the senators who was up for re-election in Georgia uh, in January in the runoff, put out a whole tweet about how, yes, he has gone and he has helped the people of Georgia with this wonderful package uh, he's proud of, and then Trump comes out in this tape message uh, last night saying the package is a disaster, uh, there's no relief, uh, it shouldn't be $600 per family, it should be $2,000 per family, um, and <clears throat> nobody knows what this means, whether he's going to veto the bill or not. Uh, it passed the bill with veto-proof majorities in both the House and the Senate, so he could, uh, having been the one of the few presidents to leave office without having a veto overturned, he could end his t- tenure having a veto overturned. Um, but uh, the other question would be whether this scares the you know the bejesus out of out of Republicans who are unhappy to have signed it in the first place and has them like flee or run away from it. Although. 50 or something Republicans voted against the bill. So they're actually, they've already expressed themselves in that way. And of course, Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders and various other people are going, great, we want that money. We want $2,000. You know, we can, I don't know how the procedure works, but apparently they can go into unanimous consent and, you know, declare by unanimous consent that, that there will be uh, this addendum to the bill without having to reopen the entire process. I don't know how he gets unanimous consent, how she gets unanimous consent if 60 Republicans voted against it in the first place. But it's a pretty good talking point, right? So they're going, oh, great. The president wants to, if he wants it, we're, we're all for it. Okay, what's going on? I have many thoughts on this, all the thoughts. Um, okay. So there's some parliamentary. Go one thought and then we'll, we'll go around. Okay, so well, all and I'm, going, I'm going to just briefly introduce one thought and then expand on another. So there's some parliamentary maneuvering here that is available to the president, um, which would ensure that, you know, this thing just is held hostage permanently. So the legislative calendar is such that everybody's out of town and there's only so many days left in this Congress. Congress will adjourn and there's not enough time if the president just determines not to sign. He has a constitutional, you know, timeframe in which he has to sign this thing and he could just not sign it which would constitute a quote pocket veto. So it could go into the next Congress and Congress would, this Congress wouldn't have the opportunity to overturn a veto. It could just languish. Um, and there's also, uh, I think a 
less than a week left on the calendar before the continuing resolution to fund the government expires. So that would also constitute a government shutdown and we'd have a government shutdown into the holidays and perhaps into the next Congress. Um, but the bigger... Which, by the way, is no joke. There's one important yeah. thing to be said here, which is this is no joke because uh, money is necessary to distribute the coronavirus, which has to be, which is being distributed by the, by the, by the army. Vaccine. Uh, and, which is, is why it's so reckless yes. and so, so we don't hostile. want to distribute the coronavirus. I apologize for that. It does that itself. It's fine. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's unspeakably reckless and hostile towards just about every, uh, you know, decent sense of propriety that the president should have. Um, it should go without saying, but it needs to be said, but more, I mean, the democratic, uh, you know, messaging here where they jumped on Donald Trump's, you know, demand for a $2,000 check. And now everybody's outbidding each other. I mean, the president was sort of absent from this process. So he's getting a lot of like plaudits from populists and Democrats and everybody's saying, you know, this is great, but it's, it's obviously political messaging and kind of silly and it should be transparently silly. The next Congress is going to be more Republican than this Congress. They're not going to get a better deal out of the next Congress. Um, and the political class it exposes a myopia in the political class because then when whenever anybody talks about this stuff, what gets everybody jazzed in the in, among reporters and columnists is the checks, is the stimulus money. It's one sixth of the bill, and it's the least important, least urgent part of the bill. Nobody on political Twitter relies on unemployment insurance. Nobody on political Twitter is employed by an institution that can't make payroll next month without a small business loan. That's the stuff that needs to pass and needed to pass two months ago. But everybody's focused on the checks because they're the ones they're going to get the checks. They're not going to get the UI. They're not going to get the PPP. Um, and that's the stuff that needs to go out immediately. And for the president to hold that sort of thing hostage and for Democrats to, to applaud it is contemptuous. OK, I think it's really important to point out that the president had a negotiator in this negotiation. His Treasury secretary has been negotiating this bill. The idea that he was not present for the negotiations or participating in the negotiations is an infamy. He has no right to claim that he didn't have a seat at the table. He had a delegated negotiator working on this. And last week, he apparently floated the idea that he should call for $2,000 uh, checks and was talked out of it by his own staff. And so now he has decided that he wants to go into it. So people have been negotiating for weeks and months in some cases. And we talked yesterday about who was to blame for the fact that it didn't happen before the election. And we put a lot of blame on Nancy Pelosi. But to walk into a negotiation at the 12th hour that he was a participant in to change the rules. Now, fine. So the negotiation, you know, it's like, ah, oh, that's not cricket, right? That's It's really bad. So he could say, I don't care what's good or bad. Like this number is too low. I've decided it's too low. You're going to go back in and do this. I don't care whether you're going home. I don't care if it's Christmas. This is for the American people. That sort of sounds good. Um, it's crazy. I mean, if the number is 600, he's going up 300. Well, how is it structured? Is this structured exactly the same way so that an individual who makes 75000 gets $2,000? But what about a couple that makes one hundred and fifty? Do they get $2,000? What about two dependents under the age of 17? Do you now get $8,000? This sort of thing doesn't make any sense. You have to go back to the drawing board. Everybody knows you. You can't get unanimous consent on this. You have to restructure the whole arrangement. Right. And that will take us into the next year. And, of course, it the cost of the bill goes, which, and forget, I mean, the cost of the bill will go up to, to 
to um to two trillion again. And um I thought he didn't want to bill a two trillion. You know, it's like I, I don't know what the hell is going on. I, I do I, know what the hell's going on, but like, Christine. Can I can I propose something a little more simplistic, which is that you know, the president's schedule today says he's leaving the end of the day in the afternoon to head down to Florida, presumably for the holiday. Um, he has, you know, his all of his efforts with uh, Sydney, the Kraken pal to disrupt the election and argue in court have all failed spectacularly. He could have been just sitting around in the White House uh, on, on Monday and Tuesday morning and thinking, oh, this is just terrible. I've got to make I've got to get back in the news cycle. I've got to be front and center. And honestly, I really don't think he feels like he was part of the negotiation because he's a narcissist. And if he's not in the room, he nothing is happening. It's like the tree that falls in the forest. So it's very likely that he just on a whim, which he we know he does things this way, decides, hey, you know what? I'm about to go down to my you know estate for the holidays. I want to give the American people something. I want to make them feel better. And everybody else is, is you know, screwing up the system. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to tape this message. And he just taped it. And I'm going to, John, while we were kind of preparing for the podcast, mentioned an analogy, which I think is brilliant. It's fatal attraction. He's Glenn Close. I will not be ignored. And the American people are the bunny that's boiling on the stove. I mean, look, let, let's put it this way. Um, he comes in at the 12th hour, not the 11th hour, but the 12th hour to say, I don't like what I'm seeing here. And uh, said this uh, thing where he said something like, uh, you're the next president is going to have to go in and fix this. And that could be me. So he's still, he's still, uh, throwing out the he's playing in this field where half of it is like we're you're not doing enough for the american people and then half of it is some bizarre continuing continuing ploy to suggest to his to the idiots in his base who still think that he has a chance of overturning the results of the election that he's really going to overturn the results of the election here so or to you know, Mo Brooks and Matt Gates and uh, Louis Gomert and the drooling Neanderthal moron dips uh, in his party who are just you know slavering after him like you know like hungry hyenas uh, you know because he's going to provide them with the with their next meal um, you know to give them some kind of meat to throw at the you know to to say that you know this isn't over yet. Maybe this is the thing that he can leverage into getting the House to overturn the results of the election, something like that. I am speaking in extraordinarily disrespectful terms. We talked before the podcast about how disrespectful to be here because I don't see, I don't, you know, he's he's leaving office. He's done a bunch of good things. He's helped Israel. I'm, you know, he appointed good judges. Uh, and I would prefer to sort of like let this, administration end peacefully but he is not allowing it to end peacefully and i i I don't think that looking at this finally there was a bipartisan negotiation that got something done in relation to something that is critically important so that we don't double dip into a second vicious recession and he is stepping in because he wants attention not because of any other reason if he wanted $2,000 checks, that could have been the firm position of the administration three months ago, and and he could have out he could have out cornered he could have made Nancy Pelosi come to the table with a huge number she could not have avoided, and he didn't do that, 
And so three months passed. And now at this moment when it would be great just for the money to go out, as Noah said, for him to step in and gum up the works is not only unconscionable, it is destructive. Like it is literally destructive because it's either going to be this or nothing. This collapses and it's collapsed. Like there's going to be preposterous shenanigans going on the first week of January in the House and and maybe in the Senate with questions of contesting the Electoral College acceptance of the Electoral College results, a pro forma thing that should be happening, you know, on the 6th of January. So we know that's going to happen the first week. So basically the entire American economy and the condition of small businesses in this country are being held hostage to Donald Trump's insane inability to accept that his presidency has come to an end. And hey. and, and to, ne- you know, he can't stand not getting the last word. So to, to whatever extent he he wanted the $2,000 beforehand and was muzzled, it, it, you know, as he perhaps sees it, it's like when he has to, you know, read off the teleprompter, um, uh, gets bored, and then comes out the next day with a contradictory uh, message that wasn't, you know, that that was uh, that was different from what was on the on the teleprompter. But I mean, I, I think um, he will be made aware of the the damage this this will do, not only to the country but to to his his presidency at at, at this late stage. Um, and I don't think it's impossible to start seeing him zagging back from this. Not only um, not impossible, yeah. I think it's the most likely outcome, yeah. frankly. Um, and we should introduce but mad that. At John Thune. We should also make this very simple point. John Thune is the number two person in the Senate on the Republican side. John Thune said, if anybody comes here, meaning Tommy, Tommy Tuberville, I gather it's pronounced Tuberville, not Tuberville, even though it should be pronounced Tuberville, uh, you know, comes here and tries to contest the elections in the Senate, like we're going to hunt them down like a dog because we need this to be over with. And so he basically has said that John Thune should now be primaried by Christy Noem, the governor of his state, who then tweeted out and said, I'm not primarying John Thune. <laughs> Why would you want the job? Right. Anyway, but aside from that, like he now wants to hurt John Thune for you know, harshing his mellow on whether or not there should be a co- contested stuff in the Senate on his on his election. And so that's why he's doing this. He's mad at Mitch McConnell and at John Thune for, you know, basically saying, we're done here. Okay, you had a month and we're done here. And now he's like, oh, yeah, well, I want $2,000 or I'm vetoing your bill, you jerk. You know, this is why if you want to come to me and say he likes to fight, this is not fighting. This is just being a jerk. This is like, it's my ball. I'm going to go home from the playground because your guys are so mean. You know, I mean, it's it's infantile and repulsive is what it is. And, uh, you know, that's that's uh, there's no defense for it. I mean, if he came out last night and said, I have structured a bit, here's what we're going to do. I have this. My people have come up with a continuing whatever, blah, 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 that we can hand to Nancy Pelosi, that they can vote on a unanimous consent that will do that. That's not what he did. He just stood there and said, I want $2,000, you know, and this bill is terrible. Um, He's been doing it for the last, you know, few weeks. He's been quietly and now obviously and overtly trying to put Republicans in a bad position, just trying to make them uncomfortable. Well, it's in, in order to, to right. demonstrate your fee, your loyalties. Where do your loyalties yeah. lie? With me or with uh, you know the your covenant with the country? 
I think that, you know, uh, his method of, of, of sort of governing or ruling or whatever through fear and intimidation, he is trying to stretch into his post-presidential period to give him options, right? So that nobody attacks him or tries to run against him or does stuff like that. And he's going to try to use his power over his followers to scare the crap out of John Thune and maybe get a primary challenger and show that John Thune really has to spend money. So you better not say anything negative about Trump in 2021 or 2022 because he'll tweet against you and then he'll, he'll make trouble for you and all of that. Um, and that's an interesting thing about keeping his options open. The real question is what people take away from this. Like, is John Thune scared or not? Does Not, not that he can now back off what he did, but, uh, you know, is this a workable way to deal with the party once he leaves office? And that's I a mean, very- it's a well, it's a fascinating question because we actually don't have an example of a defeated president leaving by throwing his toys out of the crib, stomping off and then saying, I'll be back. I mean, very rarely does that happen. And, and Republican, the Republican Party in particular is pretty harsh on its losers, not harsh by publicly shaming them, but in the sense of. You lost, be quiet, move on, get off the stage, which is why Hillary Clinton's behavior was always so strange. If you're if you're a conservative and you watched her post-election, you're like just you lost, move, move out of the way, move out of the way. Her own party was doing a lot of post-election flattery to make her feel better. But that's generally not how Americans feel after elections. We won it over. We move on. Uh, I mean, the only thing I can think of is someone like a TR type figure who then creates his own, you know, bull moose party and then runs again on that ticket. I mean, you, and I don't see the Trump uh, organization having that kind of political discipline. I, I mean, in some, the best thing that could happen, honestly, is he leaves, continues to threaten, and nobody takes the threat seriously when there's no power behind them anymore. Look, it's only happened twice in American history, and the last time was Teddy Roosevelt in, in, in 1912, which is 108 years ago, obviously. See how I did the math in my head? You guys should be really, really impressed because I did really badly on the math SAT. Anyway, but... um. You know, hundred uh, you know, hundred and eight years ago, he decided he didn't like how his successor, his hand pointed to this, was was doing things, and so he came in and basically uh, brought in you know someone who b- may have been the worst president in American history, Woodrow Wilson, by by splitting the vote uh, between him and Taft in nineteen twelve. And of course, there's the example. Don't sleep on Debs, huh? Don't sleep on Gene Debs. Uh, oh, Eugene V. Debs. Excuse me. That's right. And uh, and then uh, of course Grover Cleveland, who lost and then won again, you know, had had two non-consecutive uh, terms uh, in the presidency, both unsuccessful. So I, you know, and that was 130 years ago or something like that. So I, I can't even do the math there, 128 years ago, whatever it was. And these are not good examples to follow, right? So obviously everything is different. You can't, but the fact that it hasn't happened, the fact that it doesn't happen is a sign that it is, He's a very highly unusual figure, but like this is almost unprecedented what he may be trying to do. And, you know, uh, obviously the Republican Party is not the Republican Party that it was. It's not the old Republican Party. It's not a norm breaking party. It's not it's not a conventional state party. It's a party of, you know, uh, with a with a revolutionary uh, context to it that it didn't have before. And so that's where he's that's where he's uh, playing. But I, I, you know, it's. there's not a great history of this. And of course the danger of him threatening Thune and other people with this thing is that if in 2022, the threats prove hollow, 
uh, he will be testing his power and showing that he no longer has it. I mean, that's why you don't necessarily want to play this confrontational game now, saying John Thune should be primaried and defeated. Because if John Thune wins in 2022, then it's like, oh, Trump doesn't have it anymore. You know, he's a cuck. <clears throat> he's a cuck. He's a, he's a eunuch. I just wonder about the the extent to which the last six to eight weeks have overshadowed a lot of his legacy in office. Um, he's he's made himself into such a menace, but an impotent menace, um, that it will be difficult to escape that shadow. And right now he's staring down the barrel of leaving office and trying to accomplish as much, do as much damage as he can on the way out and just this sort of tantrum. Um, and that will, will have repercussions, uh, political repercussions, if the legacy of that effort is to delay the distribution of the vaccine, to in, in, usher in a double-dip recession. I mean, that sort of thing haunts you. And people are going to be around him saying, this is what's going to happen, and it's going to be your fault, and everybody's going to have have a trouble saying no. Now, I, I see you're shaking your head and saying, well, he no. doesn't care. He's only going to care about, his, for example, his, his rump base. And he might. I mean, he really might. Um, but... I, I, he's been talked out of that before. I'm, I'm only shaking my head, not because I don't, I don't accept your analysis, but because the, 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 the test, the thing that the next four years is going to test is, what is it that people who liked Trump liked about Trump? And this is a very interesting question, it seems to me, because people who like Trump, we could say that there were things we liked about Trump. We liked the policy on the Middle East. We liked him pulling out of the Iran deal. We liked the judges. Uh, the tax cuts seem to have had a positive consequence. The economy was uh, in good, the deregulatory agenda was in good shape and all of that. But the people who really like Trump may not give a crap about any of that. What they liked was the tweets. What they liked was the confrontation. What they liked was the ugliness. What they liked was what they like is what's gone on since the election. They like that. And so if that's really where the intensity of his support comes from, then your analysis of, of his legacy, his legacy will be exactly what the people who are the, you know, solid 35% who want him under all circumstances, let's say, want to have seen. Abe, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, in terms of overshadowing, you know, his, his legacy, that, that's kind of the story of the entirety of his presidency is that um, whatever he's done that is salutary um, has always been overshadowed every step of the way by, by the destructive and reckless way he's conducted himself. Um, I, don't, I don't know that that's new. I think that's already the case, that it's, uh, you're tempted to say he won't get a fair shake, but it is fair. It's not that he won't get a fair shake. It's that, it's that the assessment of how, what he's beha- how he's behaved, what he has done to disrupt things, um, will always be folded into any reckoning of what he's done policy-wise. And it's it's already mixed in there from the start. Um, you know, so let me, let me just uh, pull back a bit and talk to you about uh, one of today's sponsors. You've been hearing about it from me for the last couple of days. The new podcast, Post-Corona, from our friend Dan Senor, author of Startup Nation, a uh, prominent uh, businessman and uh, uh, really terrific analyst and uh, an interviewer on the question of where America is going to be after the vaccines come in and we pull out of this 
uh, stasis and frozen condition that we've been in now for, you know, uh, we're closing in on a year pretty soon. Um, Dan started this podcast about a month ago. He's had on uh, Billy Bean from from baseball, m- the the subject of Moneyball, um, uh, owner of a baseball team, owner of some uh, owner of a soccer team, and some other leagues about what happens with sports after after Corona. Uh, two shows on New York, one with me talking about uh, the Broadway theater and arts in general in New York, and with uh, Rehan Salam and. Um, Nicole Gelinas of the Manhattan Institute talking about how the largest city in the country, how the, the, the existential threat that is posed by the virus and what happens when we pull out of the virus. Uh, professors from Wharton and others talking about the macroeconomic consequences. It is a terrific podcast. Go to, uh, go to the, uh, iTunes store or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts post Corona, Dan Senor, one of the most entertaining and most interesting and most surprising podcasts you can listen to at the present post Corona Dan Senor. And thanks to Dan for, for sponsoring the commentary podcast. Uh, okay. So we, we have now talked through the, uh, bill uh and the threat to veto the bill or if, if if there is if it is even a threat to veto the bill and now we can talk some about the pardons and commutations so there's a screaming and yelling and hollering about the pardons and commutations at least two of the pardons and commutations uh are totally um justified and merited uh Largely, if you've been reading the pieces that Eli Lake has been writing for for commentary, including the latest "Guilty and Framed" um, or "Framed and Guilty," when it, which is it? I can't even remember. Drives framed me crazy. Guilty. Framed and guilty. Framed and guilty. Excuse me. Uh, the, this doesn't deal with the two these two figures, but George Papadopoulos and um, I'm sorry, I'm looking for the name of the other gentleman. Uh, so minor a figure, Alex Vanderswan. Uh, who I think got they they both got like 14 days in jail um, for making false statements to federal officials. Neither of them did anything wrong. They were not. They, in fact, George Papadopoulos, if anything, was was abused by by a transparently wrong and disingenuous FBI investigator investigator investigatory process. And those pardons are totally justified and merited. The one justified, but I think we should stipulate that lying to federal investigators is a crime, and it's a crime for a reason. Yeah, it is. But go look and see what George. You know, believe me, you can you can claim that somebody he pled to that so they could get a scalp. Okay, that's why they did it so they could put him on their list. Like under 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 normal prosecutorial discretion rules, nobody would have sought to seek a conviction of him on those grounds. Uh, on the on uh, for the lie that he supposedly that for suppose he he was anyway. It's ridiculous, and the, that pardon is, is 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 justified. There are three pardons that are horrifying beyond belief. They are of three members of Congress, Trumpy members of Congress, Duncan Hunter, Steve Stockman, and uh, Doug Collins, um, all of whom committed financial crimes uh, and whom he pardoned because they were slavishly loyal to him. 
Uh, Collins is in is in jail. He's been in jail, I guess, till this morning, uh, uh, conspiring to commit uh, securities fraud. Stockman uh, serving a ten year sentence uh, for for money laundering, um, and uh, and Duncan Hunter, who literally. Uh, in another money laundering scheme, tried to throw his own wife under the bus by claiming that she was the one engaged in the scheme. Um, I mean, talk about appalling. Like they were, they they did absolutely nothing to merit or justify being pardoned. I mean, you know, maybe they could have had their sentences commuted. Maybe, I don't know why, uh, but they could have, but he fully pardoned them because of course they voted for him. Uh, they voted the way that he wanted them to vote when, when. Well, and proving that for all of his claims to be an outsider who does things differently, he's exactly like every other president who does bad pardons of cronies at the end of his term. I mean, Clinton did the same thing. I mean, it's 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 terrible, it, it, but it shows that he actually does know how to play at least this part of the power game in Washington. It's it's also a long term message. Seriously, it's a right. it's an interesting long term message, which is yes, I will if you if you are slavishly devoted to me, and I come back into office in twenty twenty five. You do what I want. You go embezzle. I'll pardon you. Like don't don't you worry. I'll take care of you. Like that is the implicit message here. If you're going to be as long as you, you know, as long as you bend the knee to me and do what I want, I will take care of you. Um, yeah, that's I mean, which is bad. It's very bad. It's really bad. <laughs> if you were if you were dumb enough to believe that he actually ever meant drain the swamp, I mean. That's this is on you. This is somebody who has always been very comfortable with corruption, who simply wants to wield it towards his own ends and who uh, doesn't seem to have any compunction about uh, people who are lawbreakers and, and law violators, because I don't think he has a lot of respect for the law. I don't think he has a lot of respect for any institution, frankly, or any convention that which advances his own purposes and the people who are loyal to him and those purposes are uh, a paramount. And, and I think there is probably a, a fair amount of the people within his coalition who knew what he meant by drain the swamp, which was never about uh, being above board and morally righteous. It was about revenge. It was about getting what's theirs and sticking it to the people who really deserve it. Yeah, they don't. If you were a drain the swamp person, you're not troubled by this at all. <laughs> no, this is not this. This doesn't violate, you know, your 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 sincerest hopes for the for the Trump presidency. Absolutely. Um, okay, guys. So uh, maybe we can uh, we can pull back from the uh, you know from the condemnations and everything and talk a little about other interesting political things. Uh, I'm not sure what those are, but I mean there is there is of course the collapse uh, of the Israeli government and the coming fourth election uh, in two years with very little hope on the part of anybody who really wants Bibi Netanyahu to be ousted from office, that he will in fact be ousted from office uh, when this, uh, the, when this election uh, is actually staged in February or March um, in part because uh, they are vaccinating at an incredibly rapid clip in Israel. They uh, Bibi uh, Netanyahu was an early Corona hawk. In case everybody thinks that you know the politics in America uh, are precisely tracked to politics in Israel, Bibi was the Andrew Cuomo of of Israel, and the liberals and leftists were were the 
were the we need to get back to work and you know he's a fascist and doing all this stuff um so he was very very nervous about the virus and negotiated with pfizer early and moderna and got a lot of vaccine uh bought a lot of vaccine and people are getting vaccinated and so and they only there are eight million people there so it's not necessarily it's not the same challenge there that it is here obviously and so by the time the election comes, everybody might be vaccinated and or almost everybody might be vaccinated. And the and and so there might be a sort of a new era of good feeling uh, that he handled this well and got them out of it fast. He's also, you know, riding high at this this moment of um, all these incredible um, Abraham Accords dividends paying off. And, and um, you know, I think the 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 LL flight to Morocco happened yesterday or is it happening today? Um, yeah, you know, today uh, normalizing, you know, uh, uh, relations left and right. So yeah, he's. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Anyway, uh, it, it, this is not his doing. This is all the result of a collapse of his partner, uh, his partners in the blue and white party, uh, which is run by a, uh, a buffoon <laughs> named Benny Gantz, who is, Maybe in a country famous for its incredibly ineffectual and stupid politicians may really have taken the cake this time for complicated reasons, but basically uh, found himself uh, cornered and in a trap and and uh, and and uh, didn't know how to handle this. And basically, the, his party is now destroyed. Uh, I, I doubt that it's going to be reconstituted in time to run in the in the next election anyway, and his political career is basically over, uh, it, it appears. So uh, once again, BB, you know, has outplayed, outfoxed, and, and out, outdistanced everybody. Uh, let me, uh, also, I wanted to mention one thing. Our contributor, Ruth Weiss, um, who has a, a pretty amazing piece coming up in our February issue, which you can't read yet, about uh, the family of incoming Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken, uh, our friends at Mosaic, the um, the online magazine published by the Tikva Fund, uh, published uh, her unabridged translation of one of the great uh, novellas, stories uh, in the Yiddish language, My Quarrel with Hirsch Rashener uh, by Chaim Grada uh, last week, the first uh, real, at a, the first fully unabridged version of this story, which was actually initially published in an abridged version in English in commentary in the early 1950s. Anyway, tonight, uh, Wednesday, December 23rd at 7 p.m. on Mosaic's website, uh, there will be a staged reading of the quarrel, my quarrel. Um, uh, 30 bucks, uh, go to, I'm going to find you the URL, mosaicmagazine.com to sign up uh, to hear the story read, to participate in a really fun, unusual event uh, being done by the Tikva Fund, um, live reading of, 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 uh, of this uh, great Jewish classic story. And uh, please, by all means, give it a shot. So that's uh, mosaicmagazine.com tonight, Wednesday. 730. Um, so guys, what else should we talk about? We got, we're, 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 we're here. We are, we got uh, 12 days. Uh, we're going to, we're going, 
we're going dark for 12 days while everybody gets to take a bit of a break. Um, I see you don't have your bassoon. I don't. I, the bassoon is safely uh, in its case under my bed. Um, right. I threatened. Can, but, can, you, <laughs> can, you, can you tell me, because this was very instructive to me, the story of you and, and your sister, who is a professional musician, and why you tired of the double the double reed instruments that you, you played. Cause it's so, anyone who has ever played or come near a double reed instrument understands that at a certain point you have to make your own reeds and the reed making challenge. It's actually a kind of craftsmanship. That's so uh, it's so abstruse and requires all kinds of weird tools that are, are difficult to find and expensive. And it's very personal, but it's, it's, it's a weirdly stressful part of being a double reed player. I always hated making my own reeds. Um, I had an extremely generous teacher who would let me, buy his kind of cast off reads that he didn't like my little sister didn't like it either um honestly though she was the professional musician for a long time and a lot of it was the challenge of of dealing with an arts organization that it's kind of like higher education it had a lot of administrative bloat that gobbled up a lot of the budget and the musicians themselves were hustling constantly and felt unappreciated not just not by their audience whom they loved but by the people who were tasked with running the orchestra in which they performed so there was a lot of that that and as many musicians will also tell you um she can't walk through a mall and hear the nutcracker playing without kind of having a very extreme reaction because the big money makers are the pops concerts and the nutcracker Christmas concerts. So she did tire a little of those, but the truth is she just, she has a lawyer's mind and she found her way to that a little late and she loves her new profession. But but so basically what you're saying is that double replayers, like they, if, if you have to do it, it would be like a pianist who has to tune his or her own piano yes. before every concert or a violinist who has to restring her own violin. Even worse, you've got to make like 10 reads to have one that's really good and performance worthy. And then that maybe will last you a couple of performances if you're lucky. And then you, and you've got to constantly be keeping the steady stream of, you, you know, reads in production. And some people love it. They actually love that part of being a double read player, the making of the reads and, and whatnot. But you have to love that if you're going to be a professional double read player, because you can't, you can't, the machine made reads just, are impossible to use. I mean, I stopped using them in high school when I played, they were so bad. So it's see, it's tough. fascinating. Cause it's like painting. It's like when you read about, you know, painters before the modern era. And of course, you know, they couldn't go to Benjamin Moore and buy paint. They you know, they paint. actually had to, they were chemists. Mm -hmm. They had to actually formulate and make their own paint using flowers and, you know, rocks and this, you know, there was no, there how you got the how Rembrandt got the colors that he wanted that that didn't come from a store there was no store and so this weird combination of artisan artisanry and art mm -hmm. which has been completely separated in our time you know because the because the artists can buy the raw materials that are raw but all, also completely finished and here we have this kind of like regression to an almost medieval you know, you, you have to like know these incredible skills just to be able to execute the stuff that we think of as the, as the art, you know, and in some ways, maybe arguably it's more impressive what they were able to do 
to constitute the materials that they used, including stretching their canvases, making their canvases, getting their canvases, all of that stuff too. Well, and the unique quality of the art comes from the fact that so much of that cannot be replicated. Every every double read player remembers that perfect read. I mean, I remember playing a concert being like, it will never be this good again, right? And then it's gone. It's just, it's ephemeral. So just like Rembrandt's particular tint of green, you're not going to see that again. It, it can't exist. Pretty amazing. Uh, now, because it's so stressful to make reeds, as, and it's so stressful that people stop playing double reed instruments, maybe those people could use headspace. Has that ever occurred to you? Your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app? Headspace, the only one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can make you feel better overwhelmed. Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Abe, you've been watching a lot of stuff. You watch a lot of stuff, let's face it. I sure do. You do? Too much okay. stuff. So give, me some, give me some unusual. You, you watch unusual stuff, artsy unusual stuff. Can you give me like one or two interesting, unusual things that people might want to look for during this period? Huh. Interesting. Have I put well, you on the spot? Well, yeah, that's okay. But, well, I, I could, I'll, I'll recommend something. It's not that artsy or unusual. It's just good. Okay. Um, that is the Bee Gees documentary on HBO. Um, ah, okay. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. I'm a huge Bee Gees fan. They're, they're you know, um, tremendous songwriting and singing talent. Um, from way before their disco era, when they were back, when they were doing sort of Beatley um, pop songs in the late '60s and and uh, '70s, um, they're also an interesting um, group because they are brothers, and uh, like all um, family rock groups or pop groups, there's all sorts of weird tensions and alliances and breakups and get backs. Red and you know, uh, re- re- comebacks and, and all the rest of it. Um, and Barry Gibb strikes me as a particularly interesting and um, kind of decent uh, guy for a massive star. You know, uh, three or four years ago, I watched twice, watched twice this documentary called, uh, I think it's called The History of the Eagles, but it's about the, the, the Eagles, obviously. <laughs> Two-part documentary, and you may like the Eagles or not like the Eagles, the you know ultimate California rock band. But um, this thing was absolutely jaw-dropping, uh, uh, this documentary, because it, 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 it told the story of these guys who they came to hate each other in a way that few people hate other people. Uh, in the midst of producing this music that uh, one of their, you know, I think 
their uh, greatest hits out. They have two greatest hits out. One of them, maybe the best-selling album of all time. It's either the best-selling or the second best-selling album of all time. And so they were making ungodly amounts of money, worshipped, people loved them, all of this, and they couldn't stand each other. And there's this footage in it there's like a there's a moment when some documentarian was filming them backstage, and uh, Glenn Fry and somebody else, like they start saying like I'm gonna beat the crap out of you when this is so I'm gonna I you come near me go ahead come on come on come on like while they're playing they're like they're like doing you know the riff from the middle of Hotel California and they are basically threatening each other with with physical violence and you can see it in their eye they mean it too. And so that that is kind of staggering stuff. And yesterday, Peter Jackson, the director of Lord of the Rings and all that, came out with five minutes of footage. He's apparently found he's gotten 56 hours of footage of the Beatles that has never been seen before, that he is carving into a documentary that's going to be released in the summer. Um, a lot of it footage from like the last sessions that they did at Apple Studios when they were, you know, when Yoko was there and Linda was there and... There were a lot of tensions and stuff, but they were very, but it was all very play. They were still very playful and fun with each other and like trying to, the the footage that you see is of them doing Get Back, the song Get Back. And so it's, it's um, obviously that's going to be a fantastic thing to watch when it, when it comes out. Cause he of course also made this amazing They Shall Not Grow Old documentary, the one where he updated footage from the uh from world war one in 1917 uh of of you know of men in the trenches and sort of made it so that you could sort of see them in a way you could never see them before which is an amazing piece of work no what are you uh what are you looking forward to over the next uh 10 12 days that's not political uh <clears throat> that's a very good question um i'm <clears throat> i'm in a short-term mode right now focusing on the in on the next, next 48 hours oh, okay. <laughs> um yeah. which involve ungodly amounts of work and planning and foresight and uh preparation and timing the timing of everything that has to unfold you're not talking about staging like a mass murder <laughs> <laughs> like that could well, all no, actually gonna be like it's very important like first i have to there's a metaphor the charges there. and then i have to lay the you know yeah um so it's it's the christmas extravaganza we host and that involves meal planning and meal preparation and meal buying and alcohol buying and uh, the coordinating of what has to be prepped and cooked and when. And my mother did all this. My mother is um, an amazing cook, an amazing planner who created, you know, this ex- multi-day extravaganza. Um, and so that's a big thing to live up to. And I do attempt to live up to it. So it involves preparation and uh, and uh, meal planning for the, the last week I've been doing this. And it begins today to prep all the all the stuff i don't have a sous chef which would be lovely and i have to prep all the stuff i have to peel about five thousand potatoes and 200 carrots and then i have to do all the you know the all all the uh, stuff that has to be prepared ahead of time to refrigerate it and ultimately when it's if it all goes right then you can have a pretty relaxing christmas and just throw everything in the oven and create this you know miraculous meal 
but it definitely involves two days worth of work. I won't bore you with everything involved. No, so, but I have to say, can I just say, my, my, focused, my son is learning to cook. And when, when I'm, I force Noah to always send me pictures of the, like the elaborate stuff he's made. And he, you're like this role model to my teenage son who's like, Oh, one day I'll be able to make beef Wellington like that. So you see you're, it's, yeah, it's you public service. Now, <laughs> what do you do while you're peeling potatoes? Are you listening to music? Are you, are you watching, you know, are you watching uh, the fifth season of uh, NCIS? What, what are you doing? God, no. Um, yeah, so usually I listen to um, radio, but really old radio, because I'm a very old person, like 10 years ago. Um, the sort of stuff that when I was in talk radio that I used to listen to and really enjoyed. And it's all on YouTube, so it's just like go back to it. And then you know, my, my wife- Wait, but you're like listening, wait, you're listening to like Rush Limbaugh from 2009? Good Lord, no, no, no. no. Um, mostly like a comedy hot talk comedy radio oh, open uh-huh. anthony shows i used to uh, intern for that show and I, i'm still a big fan and uh, most of the comedians on that show are now dead to demonstrate just how uh, old i am but uh, nevertheless it's um, it's satisfying and then occasionally i'll go back to like the stuff that i watch on the treadmill like curb your enthusiasm like old stuff that i've already seen before so i don't have to right. devote too much focus to it if i have to actually watch it then i can't do what i'm doing so it's it's invariably something that i'm not that interested in but just keeps your mind you know entertained while you're doing this mundane quotidian task um so yeah i'm extraordinarily boring i apologize for being as you're boring not, as i am that, but, I, don't, uh, I don't consider that boring i consider that you're a mundane uh, household tasks and 10 year old entertainment products this is how i keep myself busy i'm also watching a lot of comedy these days for a variety of reasons right. um but that's the sort of thing that that i'm focused on well look noah we this is important because it it makes you happy and i'm concerned because uh you know for a lot of people there are things interfering with their happiness or preventing them from achieving their goals and better help can assess them to assess their needs and match them with their own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, not a crisis line, not self-help, professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available that may not be locally available in many areas. Service available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Better help is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for commentary podcast listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. Um, so I uh, like junk. I tend not to like uh, to watch really good stuff on small screens because I can't really sink into it. So I prefer more to graze in other words, like streaming stuff on a computer or something like that. And so uh, when I say junk, I mean stuff that isn't, you know, challenging or emotionally gripping or anything like that. So, like, I, I like The Mandalorian. I really like The Mandalorian. I'm, I have hated most Star Wars products since The Empire Strikes Back. 
This is the first successful Star Wars product, therefore, in 40 years, as far as I can tell. Um, and, you know, for those who don't like or aren't that interested in science fiction, it's really a Western. I mean, it's literally the story about a, a guy, a lone gunman, uh, who follows a very severe code protecting a small child against marauders in a hostile landscape. And the landscape changes every episode uh, as as he travels, you know, from planet to planet. But basically, these are all Western towns, some version variant of a of a Western, dusty Western town outpost somewhere, you know, out in the galaxy far, far away. And um, it is really spectacularly good. So I, I really do recommend that to uh, listeners who might otherwise think, ah, I don't want to watch that. That seems stupid or something like that. It really isn't. And also the episodes are like 30 minutes long. <laughs> it's so great to watch something where the episodes are 30 minutes long and, and, and don't have that distended quality that a lot of these streaming shows have where they really only have like 30 minutes of content, but they're hour, they're hour long shows. So they stretch them to 48 minutes and you get so, uh, incredibly bored. Although I will tell you one story before we go. So I was reading this book about Game of Thrones and um, what people really loved about Game of Thrones and of course of its seven seasons often were these uh, sort of out of nowhere dialogue scenes where the characters would just sort of sit, kick back and start talking about politics or how the world is constituted or stuff like that. And it turns out that uh, this was born of necessity that when they shot the first episode or the first two episodes of, of, of Game of Thrones and they had the battle scenes, they, they, they did that, that the episodes were way too short. They were too short. Like they, the content that they had written up and filmed ended up being like 34, 35, 37 minutes and they were too short for the hour mm-hmm. slot that HBO had given them and they needed to pad them out with dialogue. And so they stumbled into this signature quality of the show, which is like, you know, uh, uh, Tyrion, uh, you know, the dwarf kind of expostulating on the politics of, of the seven kingdoms or something like that, all because they intended it to be a fantasy action series. uh, But they didn't have enough money to have an hour's worth of action, which is very expensive to film and so this was, uh, as is often the case with, you know, great works of popular art, entirely accidental, found brilliance that was a solution to a problem that was found on the fly. Uh, you know, it's like my, my favorite story, which is that uh, uh, Casablanca, uh, as you may know, uh, which uh, they didn't know how to end, so they filmed four endings. And then they sort of, they said, okay, let's pick this one. It's the greatest ending of any movie ever, probably. Um, it was very close to the case that Casablanca was going to star Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan, that uh, they were sort of like the alternates. And if they hadn't, if the deals hadn't been made to get Humphrey Bogart and, and Ingrid Bergman, it would have been Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan. And we never would ever have known that the movie Casablanca ever even existed. So, um, the happenstance that can lead to the creation of great popular art is a very, very interesting thing. And, one of the reasons that it's not art in the conventional sense that we're talking about, because it's not the it's not a sing, unified, singular vision of an artist, re, you know, recreating the world for us, but still something incredibly pleasing and, and wonderful. Anyway, so thank you guys 
for listening this year to our podcast. I hope that we have brought you some, um, you know, uh, comfort, peace, uh, entertainment. Uh, you know, we did go to five days a week beginning in March uh, when the pandemic hit, and it's been immensely helpful to us uh, to keep us connected while we are in in four separate places. And uh, and you guys seem to like it, so we continue doing it. Uh, and I'm 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 very grateful, so grateful, in fact, that I do not. I'm grateful to your listening, but I also would like to make the last pitch. Uh, not only that you should go to commentarymagazine.com and subscribe, which you should, because uh, partially, if you subscribe to the magazine and to our website, you are subscribing to this podcast and helping uh, defray our expenses in that in that regard and helping to support us. But also, uh, we are a nonprofit five hundred one c three. Uh, if you go to commentarymagazine.com and you look uh, just below the big commentary logo at the top, you'll see donate. Commentary.com slash donate. Commentarymagazine.com slash donate is the website. And we, uh, if you are doing end of year giving, I really uh, would be uh, profoundly grateful if you would consider us among those that you donate to as the year comes to a close. We are very dependent upon our Ellen Mossonary nonprofit givers to continue doing what we do. Um, and it would be the greatest present we could receive if, if you would, if you would uh, consider doing that for us at commentarymagazine.com slash donate. So with that, uh, for those of you who celebrate Christmas, a very Merry Christmas. For those of you who celebrated Hanukkah, I hope you got good presents and uh, for everyone, a very, very happy new year as we bring a blessed close to this terrible year and uh, with hopes for only good things in the year in the year that follows so for abe christina no i'm john podhoritz keep the candle burning